Hello again, friends, and welcome to Madison Bookbeat, your listener-supported community radio home for Madison authors, topics, book events, and publishers. I'm your host, Stu Levitan, and it is my great pleasure to welcome to the show this week a Madison author with a remarkable life story, Dr. Patrick McBride. His book, written with his twin brother, Dennis, is The Luckiest Boy in the World from Vervante Publishing. Dr. McBride earned a zoology degree from the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee in 1976, a medical degree from the University of Wisconsin-Madison in 1980, and a master's degree in public health from the University of South Carolina in 1982. Two years later, he joined the faculty at the UW Medical School and with a senior colleague started the first inpatient family practice service at the UW Hospital and Clinics, while also serving as the director of a new UW clinic in DeForest, Wisconsin. He would later serve as associate dean of students, associate dean for faculty, and as director of alumni relations for the renamed School of Medicine and Public Health. In his 37-year career, he published over 200 journal articles, abstracts, and book chapters, brought in millions of dollars in grants to fund medical research, received 16 teaching awards, and upon his retirement in 2017, was named Professor Emeritus. Among his many other honors, enshrinement in the Wauwatosa East High School's Wall of Inspiration, he has been married to Kimberly Shap McBride for 42 years, and they have two adult children, Sean and Gabrielle. His twin brother and co-author Dennis has an equally impressive resume. In 2020, he was elected to a four-year term as mayor of their hometown of Wauwatosa, following 10 years on the city's Common Council. He earned a bachelor's degree from UW-Milwaukee, a master's degree in public administration from Princeton University, and a law degree from New York University, and spent the bulk of his professional career as senior and supervisory trial attorney for the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. A former track star and champion marathoner, he was inducted into the Athletic Halls of Fame at UW-Milwaukee and Wauwatosa East. But before all of Pat's accomplishments and honors, a unique entry in his resume that presaged all that was to come. He was and remains the youngest equipment manager and assistant trainer in professional sports history. And all because of a 25 word answer he wrote in 1969 to the question, why would you like to be a bat boy for the Milwaukee Brewers? He got the gig when he was just 15, and from that opportunity came the chance to also work for the Green Bay Packers. Then he hit the trifecta as a ball boy for the new Milwaukee Bucks. But it was not an idyllic life growing up in Wauwatosa for Patty and Dinty and their five siblings. In fact, it was a living hell because their parents, both of them successful and popular journalists, were alcoholics who fought constantly before finally separating. The Luckiest Boy in the World tells the amazing and inspirational story of how Pat McBride not only survived, but thrived, first in locker rooms and arenas, then in medical clinics and the halls of academia. It is a real pleasure to welcome him to Madison Bookbeat. Thank you, Stu. I'm really honored to join you. As I say, it is an inspiring book, and I'm happy to share it with the listeners and have a chance to talk with you about it. Let's start with those 25 words that changed your life, which very cleverly played into Bud Selig's sense of self and mission, and which I know you can recite by heart. So why don't you do so? Sure. I knew Bud Selig was really trying to bring baseball back to Milwaukee. So 
as a 15 year old, I guess I'm, I'm pretty surprised that I integrated it. So I wrote, I would like to be a bat boy because I would be doing a small part toward bringing baseball back to Milwaukee. I would hope the spirit I would show would be contagious. Exactly 25 words. Now you had some pretty good wordsmiths all around you. How much editing help did you get? Well, after I wrote the first draft, my twin brother took a look at it and did some good editing. And then my father was a uh, rewrite editor for the Milwaukee Journal, and he did some editing. So I definitely had some help in the editing side. Did you have any inkling what that opportunity would mean for your life? Not at all. Um, At that point in my life, I would say I was really on the downslide. I was um, really struggling in school. my twin brother was a superstar academic, um, was really outshining. My, my teachers would call me the dumb twin in, in front of class frequently and um, compare me to my twin brother's work frequently in front of the class. It actually had actually pretty serious repercussions. I was hospitalized one time for a stress ulcer. Uh, when my parents found out about it, they were pretty, uh, very upset and we were never in the same classroom again. But um, actually I owned that, you know, I, I took that inside and I always felt like I was not the equal of my twin brother and felt that I probably wasn't smart and my grades really started to suffer. So when that essay hit at 15, uh, doing poorly in school, I thought, well, maybe this was my chance. Maybe this was my chance to do something different. The Braves had left Milwaukee and, um, I don't know. I just saw the ad and it, it, a light bulb went off and I thought maybe I could do something that was very different than my twin brother. Any sense of how your life would have played out if you hadn't been chosen as a brewer bat boy? You know, I would have been really worried about it. Um, I think that fortunately my parents always said every child has special gifts and talents and you just need to find them. And they looked for the best in all of us. That's one of the reasons, despite all the severe issues that were going on, the really marked dysfunction in our family, they did look for what was best in all of us. And um, there was probably a sense that I would find something, but I I don't know. At that point, I, I really felt completely lost. Do you think you would have even had the confidence to call up the Bucks and apply for that job if you hadn't gotten the Brewer's job? Probably not, because um, what I think gave me the confidence in both the ability to interview well with the Bucks was the fact that I'd already worked in the locker rooms with the Milwaukee Brewers. So um, at that point, I'd already met Joe DiMaggio and I'd met Ted Williams and I'd met some of these famous people and talked with them. And um, when I interviewed with the Milwaukee Bucks, the people that interviewed me, this would never happen today, but I'm, I interviewed with the general manager uh, with the coach, uh, the trainer and the equipment manager. And, um, the general manager at the time was, uh, John Patterson, um, who was a former coach of the Badgers. And, um, uh, the coach was Larry Costello, who just got named to the basketball hall of fame. I mean, these were really impressive, powerful people. And there's a 15 year old standing in front of them. And I, I felt completely confident to answer their question. Uh, it was really pretty remarkable, but I'd already been in front of really famous people. Talk a bit about what you did as a clubby, a bat boy, a ball boy, and and what the working conditions were like, child labor laws notwithstanding. 
Yes, and there were child labor laws, but when, you know, people uh, have told me many times that th they thought that what a bat boy did or a ball boy did, they saw us on the court or they saw us on the baseball field and they thought we just worked those several hours that the game was going on. But actually we got to games at about two in the afternoon. I had to rearrange my high school schedule, meet with a guidance counselor and make sure that all my classes were done by two or 2.30 and then get to the stadium or the arena because we started doing all the work that was required to get a team ready. We, uh, for baseball, for example, we got all their clothes laundered. We prepared the locker room. We did errands. We made food for them. Um, after we got batting practice ready, I got the dugout ready. I uh, polished 35 pairs of shoes after batting practice and did another round of laundry and then went back down on the field. We stayed there till after midnight, usually 12.30, one o'clock, uh, cleaning the locker room, doing the laundry, cleaning the dishes, uh, polishing another 35 pairs of shoes, uh, cleaning the shower rooms and the bathrooms and all that. And then I'd get on my bicycle and ride home or take the bus home. With the Bucks, it was the same thing. We'd have to clean up the locker room and do the laundry and get everything done. And, and then I'd get on the Wisconsin Avenue bus and this was in downtown Milwaukee and put in a quarter and go home. And everyone at home was already in bed. So my parents didn't know what time I got home and they never asked. Um, and all of this was for $5 a game. So 12 hours for $5. It was hard work. Oh, it's extraordinarily hard work. I was dripping in sweat. So one of the things that I did, I was so uh, stunned that I got these jobs as a, this kid because some people thought, hey, um, you kids told me at high school, you must have gotten these jobs because your parents were newspaper reporters. And my answer to that was the last person they'd want in a locker room was the kid of a newspaper reporter. So I never mentioned that my parents were newspaper reporters. Um, so, but that wasn't it. So I thought if I'm gonna keep these jobs, I'm gonna work as hard as I possibly could. So literally in, all three of the jobs that I had with the Packers, the Bucks, and the Brewers, I never walked one time. I sprinted everywhere, at the arena, at the stadium, um, in the, inside the stadium. If they sent me on an errand from one locker room to the other, to the Brewers front office, I literally went 100 miles an hour. I went as fast as I possibly could. I was known as this kid that ran everywhere. and. Uh, so by the end of the night, I was literally dripping in sweat. My clothes were soaked. Now, how much of that was because you felt that if you worked hard and made a good impression that more good things would happen, which they did? And was any, was any of that a reaction of, of what they call being parentified and feeling responsible for the well-being of others? Oh, very much so, I guess, in retrospect, knowing what I do now about children of alcoholics and things like that, I was overcompensating, you know, I was trying to overprove myself and say I am worthy, you know, and I, I felt like I needed to uh, make sure that I didn't lose these jobs. I was afraid of, you know, when, when you have two parents at home that are so drunk and passed out that you're afraid that they're going to die. I mean, when you're a little kid, you don't know. I mean, my dad used to start these fires in the fireplace because my mother was deathly afraid of fire, just to torment her. And she'd be screaming and we'd be begging him to not do it. And 
So I didn't know if he was going to light the house on fire. Well, you know, we were always constantly terrified. And, and so I think a lot of this was in reaction to that. And I was going to overcompensate to make sure that I was okay. And um, that I, that I was in these positions, you know, what I was uh, telling somebody yesterday was when I walked into a baseball locker room, it's the most organized place that I'd ever seen. All the uniforms were lined up in the lockers with the names and numbers facing the door. So when you walked in, it was literally beautiful. I mean, you know, I, the first locker room I walked in was the 1969 Chicago Cubs, which is one of the most famous baseball teams of all time because they had the greatest Chicago Cubs players of all time. And they had a huge lead in August going into the um, September and they faded and lost this huge lead and Cubs fans never forgot it. And I walked into this locker room and it was beautiful and it was organized and it was well run and everything worked and it was completely the opposite of home. And um, that so appealed to me that I was in this non-chaotic but highly organized functional place and the same was true of the Bucks locker room you know we laid out the uniforms on everybody's uh place and you could see Alcindor and Oscar Robertson and Lucius Allen and we put up all the signs and the court was beautiful and the lights went on and it was just magical and as it happened, though, working hard and having people see you work hard did bring more benefits because it it led to I mean, that's how you got to work for the Packers, because you did such a good job at County Stadium working for the Brewers. Yes. You know, I was there were five kids that worked on the field. You know, there was a visiting bat boy. That was myself and the home bat boy. And there and there was a kid that caught the ball on the net. And there were two kids on the lines that caught the foul balls, right? And those other kids, when we first worked in 69, it was some exhibition games for Bud Selig. And those kids, after the game, the clubhouse guys were working like crazy. And those other kids would take off. And I noticed that the clubhouse guys were working really hard. And I offered to help. And I said, hey, can I help you guys clean up? And they said, sure, we can use all the help we can. And so I stayed and did this extra work for nothing. And... I had the next game, I said, hey, can I help? And they said, sure. And I was running bags out to the truck as fast as I could. And I was mopping floors and helping clean up. And the guy said, hey, would you like to work this fall for the Packers for the games that the Packers played at County Stadium? So every time that I worked hard, it paid off. And for a kid that was really struggling in school to see that hard work paid off, it, it just fed itself, you know. But I take it that working football games was not as much fun as working basketball or baseball games. No, that was the big shock. You know, growing up in Wisconsin, watching the Packers win the first two Super Bowls. I mean, this was I started in 69. I thought, wow, here's all these great things. And I was really excited and um, cramming um, 80 football players into a baseball locker room built for 35 people. And then when they walked in on a Sunday and because they came down from green Bay or they drove up from Chicago, my first game was the Chicago bears. It was awful. I mean, these guys were, uh, the intensity was insane. Baseball is very calm and funny and relaxed. The players are goofy and they're there for three or four days and you get to know them personally. Uh, basketball is, we're all college graduates then. They read books. They were listening to jazz. They were playing chess before games to relax. 
football was, they were slamming into each other. They were flexing in front of mirrors. The place was packed. We weren't allowed to be in the locker room for much of the pregame because the visiting coach thought we would be giving secrets to Vince Lombardi and, you know, the, whoever the Packers coach was. So um, it was, and then they'd come back upstairs and be all mud and blood. And it was just awful in there. It just, nobody talked to us except punters and quarterbacks. <laughs> so I got to know Joe Namath and I got to know Johnny Unitas, but um, it was, I was shocked. And the intensity on the field was much, much greater than what you see on television. I mean, the injuries, we, we would have to carry players off on stretchers that had broken bones and, you know, broken necks, and they were in agony and screaming, and it was awful. I, I grew to not enjoy football like, like I thought I did. And I was a trainer for high school football, my high school football team, and I became a trainer uh, at UW-Milwaukee for their last football team, which had some historic players on it, by the way. Um, and it was not the same. I mean, pro football is, is five levels of intensity higher than either high school or college. I would think having Ray Nitschke yell at me, even inadvertently, would, would scar me for life. So it's. I was uh, definitely scarred for life. You know, I turned with a tray of water, and here's a guy with blood dripping down his face. And all he did was, you know, I dropped my tray of water and that was my initiation to the NFL. We're talking with Dr. Patrick McBride. His book is The Luckiest Boy in the World. You write very movingly, almost romantically about the magic you felt as a teenager in County Stadium, thinking of all the great players who had sat on those dugout benches or walked up those wooden stairs. What was it like for you as a writer 50 years later to hearken back and try to recapture that sense of teenage wonder? You know, uh, people said to me two things. When did you decide to write the book and how did you remember all those things? And two things. Number one, I, I decided to write the book 50 years ago and I finally had the time to get around to it. And number two, the memories were all in my brain. Um, some of the facts, um, though, I saved everything. I had diaries and journals from some of those years and I, I have newspaper articles and clippings and pictures of me and my, I have uh, autograph books and I have a scrapbook. Um, so I had lots of details and facts and, and but the stories uh, and the memories and the feelings are all inside. And um, I'll never forget the first moment I stepped into that dugout. And you see the grooves in the stairs at Milwaukee County Stadium of where people walked up in their spikes. and. You see the marks in the in the concrete of where people walked, and I realized those grooves in that those wooden steps were made by Jackie Robinson, and were made by Sandy Koufax and Juan Marichal, and um, you know all of the Roberto Clemente, and I, I, I the history that was I, the moment I walked into that dugout, the history struck me, and I was in awe. I felt like I was in Field of Dreams. I really, really did. That's why that movie means so much to me. And I'm looking out on a beautiful baseball field. And I was, it literally took my breath away. And it, I was just flooded with who had been in that dugout before. You mentioned the 69 Cubs before. Your first encounter, your absolute first encounter with a baseball player was pretty hard to beat, wasn't it? Yes. I, as I was standing there in awe, and I literally, embarrassingly, I was literally rubbing the bench 
And I went down to the water fountain and took a drink and said, you know, Jackie Robinson drank out of this water fountain. Stan Musial drank out. And so I'm standing there and all of a sudden I hear click, click, click. And I hear spikes coming down the tunnel and literally my hair on my arms stood on end. And I thought it's my first major league player that I'm gonna be working with. And I'm wearing a Cubs uniform, gray wool. And a guy pokes his head around the corner of the tunnel. And he said, hey son, it's a great day. Let's play too. And I literally almost fainted. It was Mr. Cobb, Bernie Banks. And the next thing he says is, hey, son, do you want to have a catch? And I grab my mitt and I'm on the gravel around the uh, field playing catch with Ernie Banks. And I was so nervous, I could hardly throw the ball. And then he says to me, son, just relax. It's just catch. And pretty soon we're whizzing the ball back and forth. And as part of the research for this book, I, I read Ernie Banks' biography because, you know, he's He's a beyond life figure, really. I mean, it's the only Cub that has a statue outside Wrigley Field. It's quite moving for me when I went to Wrigley Field with my daughter who was living in Chicago for a while and, and there was his statue. And um, uh, I read this biography and he has two sons. And one of the things they said was that he was so on for games and for meeting fans. And he's just this wonderful human but that he got home, he's so fatigued, he never played son, uh, catch with his sons. And it broke my heart to read that because here I played catch with him the first time I met him and he didn't play catch with his own sons uh, ever, I guess. This isn't a kiss and tell expose, but you do name names about your impressions of some of these athletes. Uh, Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, John McLaughlin, Joe Namath, Harmon Killebrew, Bill Russell, Ted Williams, Mark Bruhard are all in your Hall of Fame. Willie Mays, Lou Pinella, Reggie Jackson, Denny McLean, and Wisconsin's own Rick Reichardt, I'm sorry to say, yeah. not so much. Give us an example of why the big fellow was so special and why the Say Hey Kid was such a jerk. Okay, sure. Kareem uh, was one of those misunderstood athletes. So John Wooden, as his coach, um, had instructed Kareem to be really careful with the media. And Kareem grew up being extraordinarily tall and very, first of all, very shy and introverted, period, as a person. And so uh, when you're six, nine, in, when you're in, in seventh grade, everybody just says, are you a basketball player? Are you a everywhere we went as a team? I traveled with the team on occasions and, and they he everywhere we went people said are you a basketball player are you but how tall are you how tall are you well how's the weather up there how's the weather up there the poor guy could literally not get any privacy and one of the reasons that he left milwaukee to be honest um multiple reasons but one of the many and he just could not get any privacy no matter where he went he would when we would hit an airport he would immediately just hit a seat and slide down you know because he was just so felt so awkward about his height. And um, so when he would walk out of the locker room, he'd put his head down and kind of duck out and fans thought he was cold and he was not warm to the media. Inside the locker room, he was funny. He was engaging. He's brilliant. You know, he's written over 20 books and he's a, a regular author and he has a column and a podcast. We would have multiple conversations. You know, uh, he's come to Madison a couple of times and he gives me a call and so let's have coffee. He's just a wonderful guy. Um, and people just don't know that about him. 
And, and the fact that he would come over and say hi to you in, in the middle of a game must have blown people's minds. It was one of my most amazing experiences. I was filling in for our trainer uh, who had gotten hospitalized and I was traveling and we were in the LA Forum, which is a really fascinating place. It's full of Hollywood stars. Across from the bench from us was Jack Nicholson and Diane Cannon and um, several Hollywood movie stars. And he'd come out of the game and he was coming back in. It was um, literally the year after he left Milwaukee. And so I was sitting at the head of the bench because that's where the trainer sits. The trainer is the first seat on the bench, then the coach and things like that. So you can keep an eye on the game. And Kareem was waiting to go back in and he looks over and he sees me and he in, it's in the middle of the game and he comes over and he says, Pat McBride, what are you doing here? I thought you were in medical school. How's it going? And because he had a son in medical school. And um, so he's talking and I look over and Jack Nicholson drops his sunglasses down, <laughs> which he always wears indoors. And I look over, Diane Cannon's looking and he and I are chatting. And then he goes back to the scorer's table and in he goes in the game. And there, I could tell Nicholson's like, who's this kid? <laughs> on the bench that Kareem is talking to because Kareem won't even talk to me. So it was a, it was a yes moment, you know, a, a one up on Nicholson, you know. Now at the other extreme, tell the story of Willie Mays and the Mel Ott baseball. Yeah, I was, it was really a discouraging moment. You know, we had an old timers game in Milwaukee and we had some of the most famous players of all time there. Uh, Stan Musial, Eddie Matthews, Ted Klazuski, Ernie Banks, all these great, players in for this old timers game. And Willie Mays was sitting in a folding chair and he was holding court, talking and telling all these stories, being very loud and boisterous. He was already being kind of obnoxious. And the contrast was one of my favorite players, Stan Musial, who's a very uh, quiet, humble, incredibly polite, wonderful man. And um, a, a guy, the, the doorman came and got me and said, there's a man at the door that has a request. And, and I went and he said, I've got this baseball signed by, my father gave me signed by Mel Ott, who is a famous, who was a New York giant who had hit 511 home runs. And the, the next giant that hit more home runs was Willie Mays. And it's, so this is famous historic baseball. And he said, it would really be a treasure for me if, if Mr. Mays would sign this ball. And and I could give it to my son. And, and so I said, oh, absolutely. The, it's a Sunday morning. The locker room's very quiet, except for these old timers. So I take the ball by the seams and I carry it very carefully over. And I wait for a moment and I say, excuse me, Mr. Mays, there's this very historic baseball signed by a fellow giant, Mel Ott, who you passed up in home runs. And this man's father gave it to him. And he was wondering if you would sign it so that he could give it to his son. And Willie Mays takes the baseball and starts bouncing it against the floor and the wall and just ricocheting the ball off the floor and the wall. And literally the other players' eyes just were as wide as saucers. They couldn't believe he was doing this. And I reach in and I just grab the ball and I say, never mind. And then I take the ball and I walk back to the door and I said to the man, I'm really sorry, but Mr. Mays is indisposed. I mean, I just couldn't think of anything else polite to say. And it, the look on his face was just such utter disappointment. And I was just, you know, every day, one of my jobs was to take a dozen or two dozen baseballs and walk it down all the players to get it signed. And it's very rare for a player to refuse an autograph. If they do, it's fine. But uh, for him to do that was completely out of character for any baseball player. Now, 
That's not all you did with baseballs or basketball. Sometimes you had to, you sign them yourself. That's, that's correct. It's one of the things I'm not proud of. Um, there's a history in sports. It's a long history. I did some research on, a lot of research on this for the book. Um, there's a history of forgeries and there's actually a history of bat boy forgeries going back to the Yankees where the, uh, the, a famous New York Yankee bat boy, you can Google it, used to sign Babe Ruth and Lou Gehrig uh, uh, autographs quite regularly. And it was pretty well known. So uh, one day I was in, uh, there was an exhibition game. Bud Selig used to bring the Atlanta Braves in regularly so Hank Aaron could be back in front of Milwaukee fans. And um, I was working the visiting clubhouse and we had the Atlanta Braves in and we took care of the umpires as well. So there's a small umpire locker room connected to our visiting locker room. And I walked in to do some cleanup in the umpires room and there's the Atlanta Braves equipment manager. And he had about 10 dozen baseballs, boxes of baseballs and he was signing best wishes Hank Aaron, best wishes Hank Aaron, best wishes Hank Aaron. So he's forging all these Hank Aaron baseballs and he said, close the door, close the door. So I said, sure. And I was kind of cleaning up and he said, um, you want to learn how to sign a baseball? And I said, oh, I guess, you know, I'm a kid. I, you know, I was 17, I think. And um, uh, he said, here, sign. So on the back of the cardboard of the inside of the baseball box, he said, practice a few times. So I, I sign, you know, best wishes, Hank Aaron, best wishes, Hank Aaron. And it turns out I had a very, unfortunately, I had a knack for it. And I could really mimic the signature quite well. So he had me sit down and I signed several dozen forged tank air and baseballs and the rest. Of, so then after that, the management of the team would say, sign a dozen Hank Aaron baseballs for me, sign a dozen Hank Aaron baseballs mm. for me. So many, many, many uh, Hank Aaron baseballs are forged. In fact, Bob Hope owned one of my forged tank air and baseballs and the owner of the CEO of the Honda corporation had one of my, Hank Aaron baseballs, that's quite a story. They displayed them at their Honda convention. Um, but unfortunately, in inside locker rooms, um, there are lots of forgeries. And my, so first of all, I'm, I'm not proud of it at all. I'm really disappointed. I was a kid and I was asked to do this frequently by management of both the Brewers and the Bucks, but I forged a lot of the Bucks signatures. They were quite easy to do. Um, I signed a lot of different basketballs for the Bucks and things like that um, until I saw where some of the signatures were going. And then I realized this was wrong and I stopped doing it. Um, but um, my view on this is why get an autograph or why pay for an autograph unless you got it yourself? It should be a representation of having met the person. So all of my autographs in my book are having met Ted Williams or having met Joe DiMaggio or having met Henry Kissinger or having met you know, some of these people. And that's when you should get an autograph because they tell a story. I have baseball signed by Joe DiMaggio, Ted Williams and Mickey Mantle, which I know to be authentic because they handed them to me right after they signed. But exactly. I, I went you know, to- I have a Mickey Mantle and I have a, Stan Musial, it says, uh, to Pat McBride, best wishes, Stan Musial. And that's a treasure to me. Same with Robin Yount and George Brett. And those are treasures. Yeah. Uh, speaking of jerks, as a physician, what's your take on those athletes, particularly a Wisconsin-based superstar 
who not only refused to get vaccinated, but mocked the whole concept? You know, um, the whole vaccination thing is fascinating to me because we've obviously had mandates for school vaccines for decades, since polio, obviously, right? Nobody ever asked what's in a polio vaccine. Nope. <clears throat> Nobody ever asked what's in a tetanus vaccine. The whole thing just became political. I mean, these are the safest vaccines. COVID vaccines are the safest vaccines that have ever been produced. They're remarkable. They're historic. They're extraordinarily safe. Um, and this just became political and people started saying, oh, what's in them? And, you know, what's this and what's that? There's almost, there's very little in them except a spike protein. Um, so these athletes, you know, started saying, oh, you know, I'm so worried about my body and my health of my body. And, you know, we know what the numbers are. We know what the safety is. We know, you know, people keep saying, well, we don't know what's 10 years from now. Vaccines, if there isn't a side effect within two months, there isn't going to be one because they leave your body in 48 hours. So for some of these athletes like Aaron Rodgers or, you know, Kyrie Irving or whatever, whoever, but Aaron Rodgers to take advice from a comedian and a podcast host is just extraordinarily irresponsible. And I'll tell you why it's irresponsible because having worked inside these locker rooms, you're with not just your teammates who you can expose and, and hurt playoff chances or you know their record during the year uh, but you expose their families and you put their children at risk. You put their, their partners at risk. You know, you put their coaches who are sometimes over the age of 60, 65 at risk. Uh, you put the staff at risk, you know, the fan base at risk because, you know, he's around all these people. It's just wrong. They're around hundreds of people that can spread these diseases. And, um, I'm sure Aaron Rodgers is vaccinated for tetanus and polio and mumps and measles and rubella. It's just, he's just being a goofball and um, pulling this whole organic health game. And um, it's just political. You know, he's, he's gotten co-opted by Joe Rogan. I, I feel alienated from the Packers because they they let him get away with it. I mean, they knew he wasn't vaccinated and they let him get away with it. And then cover up immunized baloney was it was a cover up and they were wrong and they put a lot of people at risk and they knew it yeah. and it, it really affected my same feeling toward the Packers yeah. I was extraordinarily disappointed back to someone in your hall of fame there is a heartbreaking reason why Mark Bruhart stands so tall and it involves our friend Jeffrey Erlanger of blessed memory yeah I think uh Thank you for saying that about Jeffrey. Uh, he and his parents are really special and, and something extraordinarily wonderful happened after the book was published. So Jeffrey Erlanger was a patient of a colleague of mine, Bill Schwab, and, and Bill Schwab approached me and said, Jeffrey Erlanger, who for those that don't know, was a young child who had already appeared on Mr. Rogers and he became Mr. Rogers all time favorite guest. So. And there was a moment on Mr. Rogers where the uh, Erlangers uh, asked if, Je uh, if Jeffrey could meet Mr. Rogers, who was his favorite because he was about to have surgery for a spinal cord tumor. And he was already in a wheelchair because of this tumor and was paralyzed um, uh, from the neck down. He had a little bit of movement of his arms and could operate this wheelchair. And Mr. Rogers and he sing this beautiful song together. And it, Mr. Rogers said, 
on many occasions that that was his favorite moment in all of his years of television, meeting Jeffrey Erlanger. And uh, so Bill said, Jeffrey Erlanger is the president of the Mark Brohart fan club, and he would really like to go and meet Jeff, uh, Mark Brohart, who is this very obscure brewer player. And I said, absolutely, I can arrange this. I'll call the equipment manager. I knew the brewer's equipment manager, and I'll make this happen. So we get in a van uh, with the Erlangers and my wife and, and Bill and, and Jeffrey, and we drive down. And after the game, we go down into this special area outside of the locker room and we wait for Mark Brohard. And during the game, this player, Mark Brohard played left field and he actually went 0 for 4, but he almost hit a home run in his last at bat. It went to the wall and a guy leaped up and caught the ball. It quite, he was quite a good hitter. I'm actually shocked the Brewers didn't give him more of a chance, but he went 0 for 4. And after the game, he came out and, and he met with Jeffrey and he brought him a bat and a ball and spent a lot of time with Jeffrey. I've got several pictures in the book of him smiling and being happy with Jeff and, and Robin Yount came out and Paul Molitor and they were just wonderful to Jeffrey. And, um, and we're driving home with the Erlanger family and Jeff. And while we're pulling out of the stadium parking lot, we hear on the radio that after the game, Mark Brohard was told that he was sent down to the minor leagues. Um, and this, essentially, that's like being fired from your job, you know, I mean, you're, you're in the majors and you're going from making thousands and thousands of dollars a year to making almost nothing. And you're in a little podunk town and you're, you know, the Brewers minor league team was in Helena, Montana. So, you know, you're, it's beautiful little town, but it's not the same as being in the big leagues. And, and um, Mark Berhard was never to make the major leagues again. And I think he had a sense of it. And uh, Jeffrey Erlanger, of course, became famous for two other things. He gave Mr. Rogers his Lifetime Achievement Award for the Emmys, and he became a city councilman for the city of Madison, uh, became a quite well-known and very effective politician in Madison and a successful guy, but unfortunately died of complications of his disease because he got pneumonia, which he couldn't recover from, I believe, at age 39, and died and left us. But... Um, after the book was published, uh, Howard Erlanger, his father, um, contacted me and said, how would you like to have the bat that Mark Brohard gave Jeffrey that day? So uh, I, have, I have the bat. And um, that, was, that was a special moment, meeting Howie again and getting that bat back from, from but, Mark Brohard. But the special thing about Brohard was that he knew about it before he met with Jeffrey and didn't, didn't let on. No, he... It's, it's what we call class in baseball. So Willie Mays showed no class with this baseball. And Mark Brohard showed the ultimate in class by knowing that he was going to the minor leagues and never showing us one sign. He acted upbeat, happy, kind, respectful, spent a lot of time with us. And he had just gotten the worst news of his career. And I, I, I just... Sorry. Whenever I read that, I still cry because to me, that's the ultimate. That, that's how you should act. You know, I knew players that acted that way. And <clears throat> I always tell people that when I started these jobs, what I expected was to meet stars like Willie Mays and 
Musial and Kareem and and I would be enamored by their statistics and Mickey Mantles and all that. And if you work in a clubhouse or a locker room or an arena, what you learn in 10 minutes, it's not their statistics that matter. It's how they treat us. It's whether they say please or thank you. We don't care about stardom, statistics, their name or, or whatever. The players that treat us kindly are the ones that we respect the Mark Brohards, the Danny Thompsons, the unknown names, those are the people that we adore and, and really respect. And that changed my life because I said, I wanna be like Mark Brohard and I don't wanna be like Willie Mays. I wanna be like Kareem and I don't wanna be like Rick Riker. I don't wanna be like, I wanna be like John McLaughlin and I don't wanna be like Lou Pinella. That's what I learned. We're talking with Dr. Patrick McBride. The book is The Luckiest Boy in the World. I get the sense that you had a stronger emotional attachment to the game of baseball. You had more respect for those who played the game of basketball. But for your own personal growth and professional development, how did working for the Brewers compare to working for the Bucks? Working for the Brewers was a lot more physically challenging uh, because we had so much more janitorial work and cooking and laundry and it was just and plus you know the um, the Brewers played 81 games and you know the Bucks played fewer games than that at home and uh, they didn't play four games you know we, we didn't have 10 game road stands you know they were in town for four games broken up by days and then off they'd go you know so Baseball was just very demanding. And so, but it was also very fun because we were in there with these fun, crazy guys. Baseball players graduate from high school and go to the minors in those days. And they were just goofy and they were always pulling pranks. And it was a lot of fun in there. New Yeah, exactly. It was just goofy. They were always doing hot feet and sticking, you know, hot balm in people's underwear and cutting their <laughs> pants off and doing goofy stuff. And it was always fun. Um, sticking their butts in birthday cakes and doing crazy stuff. Uh, basketball was a quiet, intelligent, respectful, really interesting locker room. And um, Lucius Allen and Kareem were playing chess and people were reading books and you could have a conversation with people. And I, I really enjoyed that a lot. And um, I got to know basketball players really well. I roomed with a couple of the Bucks players when I got to be college age and um, I played basketball and I filled in at basketball practice with the Bucks on several occasions, multiple occasions. And uh, so I just felt more part of that organization. I got promoted with the Bucks up to equipment manager and assistant trainer. I had respect from the administration, um, the management. Uh, so I was very close to the Bucks organization. I was mentored very closely by, by Wayne Embry, the general manager, and by the trainer Arnie Garber and some of the following trainers and so they were the ones that convinced me to go to medical school and so I felt very close to the Bucks organization. You don't write about it but you were also the faculty representative on the Wisconsin Athletic Board. How do you think your experiences at County Stadium and Milwaukee Arena played into how you approached your responsibilities at Camp Randall? Uh, very much so. So when I wrote my letter to uh, apply to the Athletic Board I discussed my experiences. And I said, you know, I've not only worked at college athletics, 
but I've worked in professional athletics and I know about the transition. And I also worked as a Dean of Students. And so I know what it takes about academic requirements. And I'll tell you my experience about UW, I have to say, I'm, I'm really proud of this university on many, many levels, but, all, but uh, the athletic department really does it the right way. I have to give Barry Alvarez and Chris McIntosh a lot of credit. Um, they really do take academics seriously in that athletic department. I mean, our, our first lecture when I showed up was by Becky Blank and Chancellor Blank said, "This we expect you to hold this athletic department's feet to the fire, look at the finances, look at the academics, make sure that this department's run right because they represent the university. Um, and so my experience was uh, to look at the athletes in a, in a really serious way and know that very few of these athletes were gonna to go to professional sports. I knew what it take. So, you know, I describe in the book how we used to draft 10 rounds with the Milwaukee Bucks and, you know, now it's two. And in the later rounds, they would let me draft a player. You know, they'd say, you know, Irish, you pick somebody, you know, and I'd always pick somebody with Wisconsin roots, you know. I drafted Jeff Webb, I drafted George Thompson. <laughs> they made the team, by the way. <laughs> uh, but I felt like the Bucks should do some good PR and pick a Wisconsin roots player, you know? So, um, but I, I realized these guys, the, but I watched rookie camp and the most painful thing I did every year was telling these rookies that they didn't make the team because they would tell me to go collect their, you know, they'd say, like Larry Costello would say, go tell the following people to come see me at rookie camp, which meant the hatchet was coming. And they would look at me like, First of all, you're a jerk. And secondly, my life is over. I'm going to have to go sell insurance with my father-in-law. And there was no European leagues. There were no G leagues. There, were nothing, there was nothing else for them to do if there was the NBA or bust. So um, then I'd have to say to them, by the way, I need your practice uniform, which was just cruel because the practice uniform was worth about $12 or $14 in those days. you know. So they'd throw it at me. And I'd be like, come on, I'm just a grunt, you know? <laughs> but I realized how critical that career was to those athletes because they all felt like they were gonna play in the NBA or these guys all felt like they were gonna make the NFL. And so I knew that these players, number one, had to have backup careers. They had to have degrees. They had to take their academics seriously. And so I felt like that was really important to the UW Athletic Board. Yeah. We, we talked earlier about phony memorabilia. As equipment manager for the Bucks you acquired with general manager Wayne Embry's approval, uh, some pretty special items. List some of the highlights in the auction of the Patrick McBride collection of Milwaukee Bucks artifacts. Yes. So I was in charge of all the equipment and we had boxes of all the uniforms in the equipment room that I had because memorabilia was not a thing in the 70s. So during one of my budget meetings with general manager Wayne Embry, I said, you know, Mr. Embry, do you mind if I grabbed a couple of uniforms from all the uniforms we have down there? He said, oh, sure, Irish, go ahead. And I thought to myself, I know exactly which uniforms I want. So I went to the 1971 box and I grabbed a warm-up jacket that said Alcindor on the back. And I um, grabbed the 1971 home jersey of Lou Alcindor and the home jersey of Oscar Robertson that home jersey of Lou Alcindor was also his rookie of the year jersey and the championship year jersey. He won his first MVP, his first scoring title, and his first championship out of six. 
So I had those two jerseys, Robertson and, and Kareem, Lou Cinder's first jersey, and his warm-up. And I also had his first pair of goggles that he wore. We had we searched long and hard for a pair of goggles that would give him full vision. And our trainer finally found uh, an optometrist in France that had the goggles that Kareem wore the rest of his career. And when he scratched them up through practice and he threw them in the wastebasket, and I thought, you know what? Those are his first pair of goggles that he wore. I'm just going to grab those. So I had this first pair of goggles and I had a pair of shoes that John McLaughlin wore during the championship year. And so I had a, just not a lot of memorabilia, but some really important memorabilia. And you... baseball's uh, one of the coolest things I had actually from the 1975 All-Star game where Henry Kissinger threw out the first ball. So I had a ball signed by Glenn Campbell who sang the national anthem. Mickey Mantle and Stan Musial, who were the honorary captains, first honorary captains of any all-star game. And the two announcers, Joe Garagiola and um, T- Tony Kubek, who was a Wisconsin guy. And it was at that all-star game in the clubhouse that Henry Kissinger inadvertently showed you it was time to leave and do something meaningful with your life. That's right. Henry Kissinger changed my life. So while I was making my final decision to go to medical school or stay in sports, Henry Kissinger was chosen to throw to be the honorary dignitary at the 1975 Milwaukee baseball all-star game. And I thought to myself, we've come from a very political family. You know, my mother ran JFK's campaign in Wisconsin and we'd follow up. I'd met presidents and governors and here's Henry Kissinger, 1975. Kissinger was in charge of the Paris peace talks, you know, the Middle East talks, SALT treaty. I mean, he's involved with everything in the world. And I thought, this is remarkable. You know, I hope he gets to come in our locker room. He goes to the winning locker room. Well, the National League team was leading by a lot of runs. Secret Service came in, frisked us, checked everything out. After the game, in comes Kissinger. Now, the National League team was full of some players that weren't the brightest bulbs in the drawer, like Pete Rose or Johnny Bench. And I just thought to myself, please, please do not come in and and lose it like an average fan would and, you know, gawk and go nuts over these players. You're Henry Kissinger. You're way more important than that. And of course he comes in and you could tell he'd had several beers and his cap was on crooked. He had a baseball cap on. And the first thing he does is go nuts over the players and he goes, Oh my God, it's Pete Rose. Oh my God, it's Johnny bench. And I, my immediate thought was I got to get out of here. I got to do something more important than this. I got to go to medical school. And then Tug McGraw grabbed a plate of bologna and came up and tapped him on the shoulder and said, cold cut, Mr. Kissinger. And he misses the joke entirely that he's handing him a plate of bologna. And he goes, oh my God, it's Tug McGraw. And I go, that's it. I'm done. Medical school. Out of here. And that was it. I said, I have to go. And the way the Bucks helped you get to medical school is pretty extraordinary. Yeah, it was a very generous organization. I'll uh, never forget. Um, this is why I'm so proud that Larry Costello is going in the Hall of Fame. He's so deserving. It's way overdue. And Wayne Embry is one of the members of the Veterans Committee. I met Wayne last year at Bob Dandridge's induction. Wayne Embry was the general manager, and they held a special event for me. John Steinmiller, the vice president, uh, Wayne Embry and Larry Costello and the team, John McLaughlin, they held an event for me at a famous pub in Milwaukee called Major's Goolsbead. If you make the 
uh, marquee at Major Goolsby's, you've, you've made it, you know? So I drive up with my family. It was actually remarkable that my parents were sober enough to make it. They'd never made an event before that time. And to have them sober at an event um, was pretty remarkable. And they're on the, on the marquees, it's, you know, uh, best wishes, Pat McBride for medical school. And then the Bucks raised uh, a, enough money to pay for uh, almost two years of medical school from the, from the players and the team. And it, it was truly a, a remarkable and generous gesture on their part. Of course, I've been underpaid for years. But, that's <laughs> <laughs> but when you got to the UW Medical School, it was not easy sailing. How close did you come to quitting? Very close. I, um, you know, the way I had to, so I was working 60 to 70 hours of work a week uh, while I was at UW-Milwaukee. Um, and I, my study habits were really irregular. So I often had to study before games, after games, even at halftime, you know, different, sometimes while the games were on. Um, so my study habits were really irregular and medical school does not allow for that. It's 21 credits a semester of the hardest subjects that you can take. And so when I got to medical school, this was my first real opportunity to be in a college environment at UW-Milwaukee. I just went there, took classes, and then left and went to work. I literally did not do one social thing at UW-Milwaukee in four years. So medical school was completely overwhelming to me, and I was not doing well at all. Um, and I nearly flunked out my first year, and my second year, I was doing really poorly. And when I flunked a very large standardized national exam, I was one of six people that flunked this exam. And I, um, the dean said, you need to really think whether or not this is really your career or not. And I literally spent eight hours walking up and down State Street. And I called the bucks up and I said, say, I was wondering if you'd take me back as assistant trainer and the guy said something a little uh, brutal to me, but he said, you know, get your butt back in medical school and hung up on me. And uh, now I thought, okay, I don't have a job and I'm flunking out of medical school. But it was a, a big moment for me because about the eighth hour, I realized how many people I'd promised that I was serious about being a physician and I was committed to the career. Most importantly, myself, uh, but to some people that really mattered to me. And I realized I'm gonna walk back to that medical school and I'm gonna ask for another opportunity and I'm gonna make the most of that opportunity. And, and I did. I worked as hard as I possibly could, as hard as I used to work at, the, at these other jobs. And I uh, put in the 60 to 70 hours a week and I moved up into the top 25% of my class. Which your body did not take very happily. No, no, but... Um, it was very, very stressful to me. You know, I developed chronic migraines, which I still have. Uh, I don't know if that's from the trauma as a kid, which I think, think it is. But, um, you know, I really committed to the, my career. I think the workaholism that I developed is probably an outcome of the child of alcoholism. You know, frequently kids that come from very dysfunctional homes you know, overcompensate like this, you know, and develop some kind of other ism, you know, mine was workaholism. Because, you know, I got a lot of rewards for overworking, like I did in those jobs, you know, who wouldn't work really hard when you're a kid and you have those kind of jobs, you know, 
So I kind of work, I learned to overwork, not a healthy thing. I was noting the impressive record that you and, and Dennis have. Uh, your older brother, Jen, is Professor Emerita at UWM, author of several books. Your brother, Joe, is a noted film scholar, author and screenwriter of the movie classic Rock and Roll High School. Right. Did you all achieve this kind of success despite your traumatic upbringing or because of it? I believe um, both. I, I think probably more because of it. Um, so I believe it's uh, a lot because, first of all, we have great genetics. We have two brilliant parents uh, who are very wonderful people until five o'clock at night, uh, sometimes about 3.30 or four o'clock at night. Uh, but they were, they praised us, they praised work. Uh, they came from the greatest generation who believed hard work was really important. So that's what they praised. So I think we all became overachievers. And I think we became overachievers to compensate some of the shame and humiliation we felt about our family. I mean, the police were over at our house frequently. My dad was arrested for drunken driving. It was in the newspaper. I mean, we felt like everyone was aware of this alcoholism and this dysfunction, all of our friends, you know, teachers. So I think we all overcompensated and overachieved. Um, and it just became part of our DNA, really. In addition to the unhealthy family history, the other foundational experience of your life is all the time you spent in all male locker rooms and clubhouses. How, what impact did those two aspects of your life have on your medical career, both staying away from surgery and also focusing on family medicine? Um, really interesting. I talked about this at a book signing last night. You know, I wondered if I wanted to do sports medicine, but I, um, my first experience with this, my first experience with this was um, when I got to surgery, it was a locker room and people were in uniforms and they were telling jokes and everything. I felt like I was back in a baseball locker room. And I thought, you know, I just did this for seven years and I purposely was leaving this. And I really sought a highly professional uh, environment where people were caring and idealistic. I wanted a really different life. So I wanted, first of all, a really healthy family. That was my highest priority. And I also wanted a career where uh, I could really be caring and uh, professional. And so family medicine really offered that to me. It was, first of all, not a surprise that I chose family medicine because I wanted to know how to make a family healthy and keep a family healthy and help families that were dysfunctional. So I, I chose that and it's pretty obvious in retrospect why, but I was also seeking to learn about um, how to make a family healthy. And uh, so over my career, you know, I, I delivered over 500 babies and I worked with a lot of families and I worked with a lot of dysfunctional families. And unlike my experience where nobody ever referred our family for help, I was able to refer a lot of families that struggled for help. And, uh, you know, I, I, I can reflect back on two things. Number one, I feel like my greatest accomplishment um, is that I have a family that I'm really proud of. My kids are fantastic people, caring and kind and doing great things. Uh, my daughter's a first grade teacher. My son runs a company that provides mental health services to people, um, hundreds of thousands of people. And uh, 
my wife is an artist and a wonderful mother and, and wife, and I'm proudest of that, of anything in my life. And uh, second, um, I feel like my career um, was meaningful, made a difference to people. And I'm, I'm, I feel good about that at the end of the day. And the trainer of the Bucks was right. Um, I shouldn't have spent my life in a locker room. He said, you need to get out of here and you need to do something more important. There are some very personal revelations in the book, most especially about your parents, which must have been painful to confront and write about. Did writing the book help you understand anything new or had the therapy already done that? You know, I'd gone through therapy uh, a couple of times, um, you know, first after my, you know, while my mother was really sick. And then when she died, she died when uh, she died on the due date of my first child. Uh, she died like Whitney Houston, as I say in the book, you know, she drowned in a bathtub uh, having an overdose. And uh, I had to identify her body on the day my son was supposed to be born. Um, it was extraordinarily painful and and uh, obviously one of the hardest days of my life. Uh, so I did therapy during that time. And then I did therapy later uh, working on some of these issues. And just to make myself a better father and husband, I wanted to be the best I could be. But then when my twin brother, I wanted to write a book just about the sports stories and make it fun. And he said, you're not going to do that. You're going to tell the whole story. And I said, oh, come on, man. I, people don't want to read this. And he said, they want to read the whole story they want to read who you are he's he's right and as you probably would agree that story is much better by telling the whole story and um because it helps people i've talked to high schools i've talked to groups that of people with alcoholism and things like that it, it's it's really important to tell the whole story and um but during it it was painful to bring it all up again i mean i dredged it all up again i i went through therapy again during the writing of the book well uh, your Dennis was right because as I told you earlier the sports stuff is interesting and it'll bring people in but the, the family stories and the medical stories that's what's powerful and, and that's what I think the, the real impact of the book is from we talked earlier about the 75 all-star game it was another special ball game at county stadium the old timers game in 1987 that helped you heal some of the wounds with your father Tell us about that day. You know, I call that my field of dreams moment. Um, I want <clears throat> to, the Brewers equipment manager, who is the second youngest equipment manager in professional <laughs> sports history, Tony Migliaccio is a wonderful guy. He's still there. Um, in 1986, uh, right after my son was born, he called and said, well, how would you like to be the bat boy for an old timers game? It was a Brewers Yankees old timers game. What an opportunity. God, I, I couldn't believe it. So I go back and I'm in County Stadium and, you know, I bring my mitt and I show up and he said, um, hey, welcome back, Pat. And he said, hey, go check out your locker. And I'm like, what's he talking about? You know, I figure I'm going to wear the old Bat Boy uniform 99 or BB on the back. That's what they always had. And he said, I said, well, where's my locker? And he points to the first locker. Now, the first locker is always reserved for the star. Now at this game where people like Sparky Lyle and Billy Martin and Lou Pinella and all this stuff. And I, he points to the first locker and there's, he said, that's your locker. And, I, and that's a clubhouse guy doing a clubhouse guy, a huge favor. 
and in my locker is the number one. And he goes, are you sure? And I, and I, I, he said, yeah, that's your number. You're wearing number one today. Well, that's usually reserved for the big star of the team, you know, the manager or whatever. So I wore number one for the old timers game. I mean, players were looking at me like, what the hell's a bat boy wearing number one for? <laughs> so I put on the uniform, I walk out onto the field and let me tell you, you know, I really felt like during all seven years that I worked there, I tried to appreciate every more moment, but I was working so hard that it did go by like a blur. I really tried. I mean, I wrote down notes. I, I tried, but in that game, I really tried to savor every moment. And, you know, I'm out there playing catch with some of the old brewers and some of the Yankees. And they're like, Hey, what are you doing now? And I said, well, I'm, you know, I'm a doctor and they're like, thank God you're here. Cause they're, they had bellies out, you know, gigantic bellies and they were afraid they were going to have a heart attack during the game. So I was running around doing my bat boy thing and playing catch and, and I'm playing catch with one of the brewers and I look up into the stands and there's my dad, sorry, sitting with my wife and uh, my newborn son. And uh, <clears throat> that was the first brewers game that my dad ever went to. I'd invited him for seven years to come to a game and he never came because he always said, it's just work. You're just working. And I'm like, dad, you know, I'm on the field with all these stars, you know, I said, it's just work. And he put up his newspaper again. And yet he went to every one of my twin brothers, baseball games, every high school game, every college game. It broke my heart. Uh, but there he was. Um, so it felt to me like the scene in Field of Dreams when uh, the guy tries to go out into the cornfield and James Earl Jones said, you need to stay here. And he turns around and he looks and there's his family up on the porch. And he realizes that the most important thing is to take care of your family because there they were. It was a Field of Dreams moment for me. Powerful, powerful moment. And even though you were not able to make peace with your mother before she died in a particularly horrific manner, you did have an encounter with the legendary Helen Thomas, which brought some level of satisfaction and passed her story on to the next generation. Tell us about that. Yeah, it was a beautiful moment. I was in a small restaurant in Washington, D.C. My son was working in D.C. and I was sitting with he and his roommate and we were we were in there and the only other people in the restaurant was, was Helen Thomas, the famous writer who always sat in the front row at the presidential briefings with a friend. And I, I said, well, I'm going to go over and, and ask if she knows your grandmother. And my son said, dad, please do not go over there. And I said, I'm going, you know, cause I'm not shy about it. I got that from my dad, the reporter. And he said, please, please don't. So I get up and I go over and I go, excuse me, Mrs. Thomas. Uh, and she said, what is it? And I said, uh, do you remember Marion McBride? And she said, you sit down here right now. And she slides over and she said, what are you drinking? Then? So she said, you, your mother and I fought the fight against all the male press and all of the politicians to make sure that women had a place in politics. And your mother, let me tell you about, is that your son over there? Get him over here. I want to tell him about his grandmother. And meanwhile, my son's roommate said, oh my God, Helen Thomas is one of my heroes. So 
we ended up having dinner and drinks with Helen Thomas for the evening. And she regaled my son uh, and I with stories about my mother and how great a writer she was and how important she was to uh, women's history and politics uh, and, and the women's feminist movement in, in political writing. Amazing moment. I mean, it really helped. I'm afraid that is all the time we have with Dr. Pat McBride about his book, his very inspirational and quite wonderful book, The Luckiest Boy in the World, written with his twin brother, Dennis McBride. Uh, I cannot recommend this book highly enough. As I say, you'll come for the sports stuff, but you'll stay for the, the family stories and the medical stories. It is quite inspirational. I'll be back on May 30th with local author Kim Auklon to discuss her Madison-based young adult novel, The War on All Fronts. Until then, on behalf of News and Public Affairs Director Charlie Pittman, Engineer Chuck Cademan, and all of us here at Madison Bookbeat, I'm Stu Levitan. Thank you for joining us. Now, as Ben Sidron plays us out with a little bit of Little Sherry, please stay tuned for Alex Wilding White and All Around Jazz. You're listening to WORT, 89.9 FM, Madison. Listener-sponsored, community radio.